Beloved, one of the <clears throat> things that has grabbed me this Christmas season much more <clears throat> excuse me, than other Christmas seasons is just the depth and the breadth of the entire gospel message in the Christmas story. Um, it's always there, of course, but uh, this season in a very unique way from the men's big breakfast and the quartet and the song that was sung there and at Jim Hershey's celebration of life service and on a Lord's Day morning here, uh, to Gary shepherding even one of the phrases he said earlier, the gospel in its fullness, <clears throat> to uh, even the passages and the messages that I'm blessed to bring to you. Our text this morning is Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 39. This is a second aspect, the second aspect of the two aspects of the gospel message of the Christmas story, which could be boiled down in one way to sin and salvation. Last week in verses 26 through 31 in Hebrews chapter 10, there is a great, strong, severe warning from the author around sin, around apostasy. The author pivots here more to the subject of salvation. And when we think of salvation, salvation requires to be saved from something, namely sin. And this is nothing new under the sun. We can think of saints of old. The men of God, the women of God have always looked for salvation from the Lord. Jacob, when he was prophesying over his children, said, For your salvation I will wait, Lord, in his prophecy to his son Dan. Moses told the people of God, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Now that had a particular national importance for the nation. Or you can think of a situational position with godly Hannah. When she prayed to the Lord and said, I rejoice in your salvation. Godly Hannah, again, had a situational, practical aspect to her heart cry. But whether it's national or situational, positional, practical, whatever, we understand that all means of salvation, all forms and outreaches of salvation must be based upon the one true salvation that is found in Christ alone by faith alone, where man or woman is reconciled to God by which we can be reconciled to one another. And even as we sing the King James words, goodwill towards men, we can have goodwill towards one another by virtue of the reconciliation we have to God or King David. King David, who sinned greatly, said, My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge and my Savior. The Christmas message. Jonah prayed from the belly of the great fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Uh, we can go forward in time from these Old Testament saints to more modern Old Testament saints, namely Mary and Joseph. The angel Gabriel, the messenger, brought a message to both of them that the baby boy that would be born to the Virgin Mary, God instructed both Mary and Joseph through Gabriel that you shall name him Jesus, you could you shall call him Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. Even the name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, means God saves, Yahweh saves. Some 30 years 
after Gabriel appeared to Mary and to Joseph. John, the forerunner, who was the fulfillment of the one who was crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the coming of Yahweh, which realized itself in the form of Jesus Christ. John, the forerunner, John the baptizer, sent two of his disciples when John was imprisoned by Herod Antipas to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Beloved, just snippets, tidbits of the Christmas story, the gospel message. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And beloved, this passage that we have providentially before us fits well. As I said, even with the breadth, so last week was the one side of the coin, the focus on sin. This week from Hebrews is the other side of the coin, focusing on salvation. Then next week, and I love it when Christmas falls on the Lord's Day on Sunday. We'll have a special Christmas message. But when we go into verses 32 and forward, we understand that this is coming after the dark warning of verses 26 through 31. But what the author does, what God does is he follows the dark warning of those previous verses with a dawning encouragement, with words that should put joy in the heart of his children. God gives a word of reassurance. And brother and sister, God wants you in the same way the human author of this magnificent epistle wanted his original audience of this Jewish Christian congregation, most likely in Rome, to be encouraged and to be emboldened. God wants you, brother or sister, to be emboldened in your face so that you emerge victorious from the great contests of suffering and your faith that you and I have each and every day. Beloved, hear the word of God as I read Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. But... Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of their soul. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, at the heart of these verses is salvation. And we see salvation evidenced. We see salvation expected, and we see salvation achieved. What the author is doing is he's letting us know this is what salvation looks like. This is what salvation longs for. And simply put, this is how you get it. This is, in a sense, an answer to a question that a jailer asked in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 16. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians. But even here, you have the heartbeat, you have the essence of the answer to that question, sirs, madam, ma'ams, what plural of ma'ams, what must I do to be saved, whatever that might be. So, beloved, first, let's look at salvation evidence. We see this in the first three verses, verses 32 through 34. Again, this is the author telling us what salvation looks like. Now, despite what Freud and other psychologists say, you and I, men and women, we are more than merely the sum of our acts and the sum of our desires. But at the same time, we do realize that our identity is tied into what we do. To be sure, we are far more than what we do. But again, what we do does help define who we are. And what the author does here is he brings encouragement to his audience. God brings encouragement to you and me by pointing us back, of reminding us, of telling us to remember what has taken place before. Look at the text, verse 32. He says, but, and again, this is a powerful contrast with the severe, striking words that, of warning that we saw in the previous verses. He says, but remember the former days. This is the driving imperative. This is the central command of these first three verses. And what he literally is saying here in the grammar of the original, he's saying keep on remembering. Remember and never forget. Remember and keep on rehearsing in your mind from whence you came. Remind yourself, remember what God has rescued you from. Specifically, remember the former days when, after being enlightened. He's saying, remember when God turned the lights on. Remember when God removed the scales of darkness from your eyes so that you could perceive the truth, you could see Jesus as he is, as who he claimed to be. Beloved, this is also at the center of the salvation message, the Christmas story from days past and all the way forward. You may remember the great example of the godly older man, old man Simeon, who had been looking at the time of the birth of Christ. He was advanced in years, and he had been looking for the consolation of Israel. He'd been looking for a measure of fulfillment of God's promise to the nation of Israel, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all the peoples. And when old man Simeon saw baby Jesus there in the temple grounds, in Luke chapter 2, verses 30 and 32, uh, good Dr. Luke records for us that Simeon said, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of, note, all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Beloved, the point there is the illumination, the unveiling, the turning on the lights are for all peoples, both Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old. That is the message. That's even what the angel told the shepherds after he said, don't drop dead from fear at the majesty of the angel. Remember, the angel said to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Why? For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will be for all the people. Beloved, that is at the center of the Christmas message. That is at the center of the gospel account. And there is illumination, and there is also here in the text of Hebrews, tribulation. 
And that is what the author now reminds them. He says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Remember your steadfast endurance during difficult trials. Remember the God-induced, God-engendered courage that you had to withstand a heavy load of trial and tribulation and suffering that was upon your shoulders, that you were willing to bear this with resolve rather than to flee in cowardice. Beloved, remember what God is saying here, the brave heart he's given you. We know from Ezekiel, for example, the writings of Ezekiel, that before our salvation, we had a heart of stone. We know that every man, woman, every human being, every child is born a sinner in rebellion against God, a transgressor of the law of God, and we are in need of a heart transplant. What the author says here is, remember the brave heart and the new heart that God has given us could be captured and described in many different ways. But what the author does here is remember the brave heart that God gave you that faces difficulties and suffers through them. This is the same kind of thinking as the half-brother of Jesus, James. James, who's the son of Mary and Joseph, wrote in James chapter 1, verse 12, he said, Blessed is a man who perseveres. And by the way, that's the same Greek word translated as endure and endurance in Hebrews. Blessed is a man or woman, by extension, who endures under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Beloved, the message of the author of Hebrews, the message of James, the message of Paul, the message of Jesus, the message of the word of God, even in the Old Testament, is the one who loves endures. We love because God first loved us. Because we love because God first loved us, what God tells us is we will endure. Not perfectly. We may stumble. We may trip. But God is the one holding on to us and helping us along. Now what God says as we go forward in the text, he says, be a good athlete for Christ because you will be put on a stage. The word conflict is actually, it only appears, the Greek word only appears one time in the entire Bible, and it's the Greek word athlesis that is the Greek origin of our English word athletic or athlete. Um, I love the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, who absolutely in no way, shape, or form could have written Hebrews, different topic here, but the Apostle Paul loved athletic imagery. So also the author of Hebrews uses this unique word to talking about and bringing to mind the struggle and the pain and the commitment that's necessary to win an athletic competition. But it's applied here to talk about the struggle, pain, and the commitment necessary for you and for I to endure suffering, tribulation, and trial in our great contest of suffering. But as we go to the rest of verse 33 and forward, the author gets more specific. He says, look at verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. And it's interesting, the word, the Greek word, made a public spectacle, that's the Greek origin of our word for theater. So again, what the author, what God is saying here is be a good athlete for Christ because you will be on stage. To be sure we understand that by virtue of our profession of Christ, we are the world's witness. We are the world's 
view and representation of Christ. But what the author is bringing out here was a specific situation for these Jewish believers where in the past they had been exposed to contempt. In fact, the Apostle Paul captures the same idea using the same word in 1 Corinthians 4.9 describing the onus and the burden of being an apostle. The Apostle Paul said and wrote to the church in Corinth, God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle, same word, spectacle, same root, to the world, both to angels and to heaven. But the author's point here, beloved, the author's point here, dear friend in Hebrews, is that reproach and tribulation are a spotlight into the very depths of our being. By virtue, the word of God refines us. The word of God is a spotlight that burns away the wood, hay, and stubble and refines the precious metals. And God uses reproach and tribulation to do the same. We very often will find ourselves weak, perhaps where we thought we were strong. We may find our view murky where perhaps we thought it was clear. Again, the best ground for that is the word of God, and God also uses the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations, the suffering, the reproach, and tribulation. And it is both forced, in the case of the Jewish believers, they were forcibly made a public spectacle. Very likely the Roman Emperor Claudius in AD 49 banished and expelled all Jews from Rome, and that would include the Jewish Christians. Very possible that's what the author is bringing to mind of the audience. So it was a forced suffering, but also there's a voluntary aspect to the suffering. At the rest of verse 33, he says, secondly, and partly by becoming sharers with, fellowshipping in suffering with those who were so treated. You are standing loyally by one another. Uh, We understand, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member of the body suffers, all the members suffer. Physically, uh, sometimes if you get a cold or you're fighting off some kind of illness, you might notice a toothache. I mean, the body, as God has created us, is wonderful and amazing, but what God describes there is he uses the physical illustration and analogy of the human body to remind us that we are mystical, spiritual beings members together with one another in the body of Christ. And again, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And the specific example, look at verse 34. He says to the group, for you have showed to the congregation, you showed sympathy to the prisoners, to the prisoners. Beloved, understand this. Friend, understand this. In biblical times, Prison was not a place of free food, free education, free entertainment, and free gender transition. It was not. It was a horrible place. And very often, if you didn't have family members or loved ones who would bring you food or clothing, very likely you would die of starvation or even freeze to death. But they showed sympathy to one another. And there is a risk. There is a sacrifice there, not merely the risk of giving food and clothes out of their pocket, but identifying with the people that are in prison, and they were in prison because of their faith and their stand for Christ. And this is the very same word and the same terminology that was used earlier in Hebrews back in chapter 4, where the author tells us about Christ's ministry to us as our faithful high 
priest. He said in verse 15 of chapter 4, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. So the author used it first to describe Christ. Now the author uses it to describe you and me and our ministry to one another. And beloved, dear friend, understand this. This is not a remote emotion of pity and empathy. This is an intimate action of being and feeling together with at personal risk. And the author continues, look at the end of verse 34, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. I mean, it's one thing to accept ruefully or mournfully or disgruntledly the seizure of your property. It's a whole nother ball of wax to accept joyfully the seizure of your property. And what the author, what God is reminding the audience is by virtue of the newness of life that they enjoyed, by virtue of the birth of the babe, they accept their loss without despair or cowardice. Because even though the original audience here, we know from chapter 2, verse 4, they were second-generation believers. They didn't hear and see Christ directly themselves. They had had the good news of the gospel, of the Christmas story, if you will, brought to them by people who had heard. And very likely as a result of that, they'd heard many of the teachings of Christ. Even though at that time they didn't have the writings of the New Testament the way we do, they had very likely heard it by oral tradition, and they probably heard some of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where, for example, Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Jesus said to his disciples, Jesus said, <clears throat> by extension to this group of Jewish believing congregation, he said to you and to me, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Beloved, that is what fires the excitement and the ability and even the joy so that this group of people joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. It made me think of Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And the final words of the magnificent hymn, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Beloved, that is the gift of Christmas. That is the gift of salvation. And while we say all this, while we understand this good doctrine, as we see the magnificent example of the fortitude of this group of Jewish believers in the early church, we understand that to stand up and be counted in times of reproach and tribulation is no easy thing. We also understand that sometimes it does take for the chips to be down to build a team, to build camaraderie, to test the metal, to really see where do I stand. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.14, he said, You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. Brother, sister, 
What are we going to do when the reproach and the tribulation comes? We can heartfully pray to the Lord, have a cry heart to the Lord that we may be obedient. Even going back to what we saw earlier in chapter 10, when the author of Hebrews begins his great application of these foundational doctrines that he spent nine and a half chapters laying. And he said in verses 24 and 25, stir one another up to love and good works. Beloved, stir one another, each other up to love and good works, even in the context here later on in chapter 10, out of the ashes of our pain is what we see the word of God say here. This is not an easy message. This is perhaps a little different than a normal Christmas message, but beloved, dear friend, this is right in the flow and the stream of the good news of the birth of the babe who was laid in the manger. We understand God has not yet removed us from the realm of tears, but as we continue on here in this verse, we're willing to lose everything because of what we can't lose. Look at verse 34 at the end. Knowing, knowing absolute certainty that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Dear friend, The things of this world can no more stop trouble than a paper sheet can stop a bullet. But in Christ, in Christ, we have a fullness and a foreverness. And by the way, I checked, according to at least Microsoft Word auto-check, foreverness is actually a word. We have a fullness and a foreverness. It's unearned, it's imperishable, it's eternal. The author has told us we have an eternal salvation, chapter 5, verse 9. We have eternal redemption. In chapter 9, verse 12, we have an eternal inheritance, chapter 9, verse 15. And the context of this audience, again, beloved, understand this. The fact of suffering for the name of Christ was taken for granted in the early church. In fact, it's interesting, Ignatius and Clement, two early church fathers, used that same word, athletes, that the author uses here. They used it to describe the extreme examples of martyrdom, of brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Most High God who had faith in Christ, who gave up their life for it. R.C. Sproul, in his excellent book, Surprised by Suffering, wrote this, quote, when God issues a call to us, it's always a holy call. The vocation of dying is a sacred vocation. To understand this is one of the most important lessons a Christian can ever learn. When the summon comes, we can respond in many ways. We can become angry. We can become bitter or terrified. But if we see <clears throat> This as a call from God and not a threat from Satan, we're far more prepared to face it courageously, end quote. Beloved, that is the salvation that is evidenced in those, the women and the men who are saved. If we want the blessing, we must be prepared to carry the burden and to fight the battle. This is service before self. This is Charles Spurgeon saying, I'd rather be ground to powder than to quit my faith. Or one very powerful example from church history, John Hooper was a 16th century pastor who was burned at the stake on February 9, 1555 at the bloody hands of bloody Queen Mary. Pastor Hopper, excuse me, Hooper, Pastor Hooper, it's not a rabbit, it's a pastor. Sorry cut the tune on out. 
<laughs> Pastor Hooper wrote a letter 19 days before his execution. This is what he wrote as he knew he was going to give his life for Christ. He said this, quote, Now is a time of trial to see whether we fear God or man. It was an easy thing to hold with Christ while the prince and the world held with him. But now the world hates him. It's the true trial who is his. Let us therefore not run away when it's time to fight. Remember, none shall be crowned but those who fight manfully. And he that endures to the end will be saved. And then final words perfectly in line with our text here. Loss of goods is great. But the loss of God's grace and favor is greater. I will die at the hands of cruel men. However, he is blessed who loses this life full of mortal misery and finds the life full of eternal joy. Beloved, that is the fullness, that is the foreverness that God is telling you and me here in Hebrews chapter 10. We suffer with patience, we endure with meekness. And before we move on, just one quick question. We can ask the question, are we saved in the end because we endure? We can think of Noah. Noah wasn't safe because he was in the ark. He was in the ark because he was safe. You and I are not saved because we endure. We endure because we are saved. That's the gospel message. That's the Christmas story in extension as we look at the fullness of the gospel. So salvation evidence. Secondly, we see salvation expected. The author pivots from looking past to look at the time now and look in the future. And what the author brings out is that our future hope dictates our current identity. This is what salvation longs for. This is where you showed your courage then, now it's an already and not yet. You need to continue showing your courage now. Look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your open courage and boldness. Don't throw away your confidence in who Jesus is. Your confidence in what Jesus has done. Don't throw away your open, bold proclamation of the faithfulness of God because it has a great reward. Don't throw it away. And then verse 36, for you have need of endurance. And I love it. This is, this is Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You showed courage before. You endured before. Keep on enduring. You need to endure now. That was then. This is now. That was the road traveled. This is the road that you're on and the road to come. And the author will Bring it out again in chapter 12, verse 1. He'll say there, right there, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us as good athletes of Christ, if you'll indulge me from the verse that we just read. Beloved, dear friend, understand this. Saving faith endures. Uh, Jesus himself brought this out. Luke 21, verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Uh, Paul, in his final letter to Timothy, as he was laying in prison, 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Again, this is not saying that you're saved by enduring, but if you are saved, you will endure. Not perfectly, 
but you will not have a final apostasy. God will hold on to those who belong to him. God the Father gave a love gift to the babe that was born, God the Son, even in eternity past, before he took on the human vessel of weakness. God the Father promised God the Son that he would give him a gift of a redeemed humanity. And therefore, those who are new in Christ, those who are saved, will endure, not perfectly, until we are glorified, until we get into eternity, until we see Jesus as he is, even as Jim is, even as my beloved Margie is, even as so many other of our beloved loved ones in Christ who are asleep in Christ and with the Lord. Beloved, your faith, my faith, our faith is strengthened by trials. It produces a purified, deeper, stronger faith. Uh, Paul, to the church in Rome, Romans 5, 3 said, we exult in our tribulation. Why, Paul? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Same word, brings about endurance. But here, look back to verse 36, continuing second part. So that so that, the purpose why, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. See, now he's pointing us to the future. Our identity is tied into what we do. It helps define who we are. Now, Jesus said, as recorded by Mark 3.35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That gives flesh to the beautiful phrase, you are adopted into the beloved. You are part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a hundredfold, thousandfold return when we have laid things at the foot of the cross in houses and in brothers and sisters by virtue of being in the family of Christ. But the rub, the shibboleth, the tension is in the practical matters of the here and now. Uh, Thomas Kempis a 15th century person said this, quote, Jesus has many who love his kingdom in heaven, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire comfort, but few who bear suffering. He finds many to share his feast, but few his fasting. All desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer for his sake. Many love Jesus as long as no hardship touches them. And the question, dear friend, for you and me, are you among the few who are willing to suffer for his namesake? A challenge to all of us is, are we willing to suffer joyfully for his sake? That, again, is the rub. That is the great challenge. And beloved, dear brother and sister, understand this. The sovereign will of God will never take you where the sovereign grace of God won't keep you. That is God's promise in his word. But now we culminate, and this even ties into the Christmas story, the first coming, which points to the second coming of Christ. In verse 37, the author looks ahead to the consummation of salvation at the second coming of Christ. He came once, he's coming again. Look at verse 37. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. In three different ways, the author brings out there with beginning very clear language at the beginning and at the end in some complex Hebrew grammar, which is brought into the Greek of a participle of a medium future with a future instance. And you can rewind the tape and move on past that. Whole point, beloved, in three, I've uh, thrown that out for, you know, different ones, but 
in three different ways. Sorry, main point here. Calm down, boy. That's me. (laughs) What the author is bringing out is he could come at any time. There's an imminence that. When the author wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, he could have come at any point in time in the same way. Yes, it is 2,000 years later, but he could come at any time. And for those of us, by God's grace and mercy in Christ, whose sins are forgiven, we long for that. We look forward to that. We're excited. We anticipate that. We watch and wait. He came the first time as a baby. He's coming back as a king. He came as a lamb. He's returning as a lion. He came in humiliation. He's coming in exaltation. And again, what that means for you and me as we watch and wait. The Apostle Paul wrote again to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The Paul wrote that to the church in Thessalonica to give them encouragement. If you go earlier in the chapter, he's exhorting them to purity. He's exhorting them to a holy life before the Lord, and he uses the imminent return. It could happen at any time, the second coming of Christ, to encourage the church to holy living. Or we could go all the way to the closing of the canon of Scripture in the New Testament. Revelation 22, verse 20, John quotes Jesus and says, he who testifies to these things says, here's the quote from Jesus himself, yes, I am coming quickly. And John finishes, amen, come Lord Jesus. Beloved, that is salvation expected. Salvation evidence, salvation expected. Lastly, in the last two verses, salvation achieved. This is how You get it. This is the answer to the jailer's question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Look at verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. Beloved, dear friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're here this morning because somebody invited you, it's Christmas, we are so glad you're here. You are welcome here anytime. And if you take away one statement from everything up here, take this one away. You are saved. Salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone. My righteous one shall live by faith. That's a citation from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Habakkuk was a 7th century prophet. He prophesied to the nation of Israel in a time of national emergency and severe trial. Within the nation, in the land, violence and injustice prevailed. There were threats from Chaldean assault and conquest from the outside. So turmoil and trouble within and threat and tribulation, excuse me, from the outside. And the author says, but, 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 my righteous one will live by faith. The author of Hebrews quotes this. Paul quoted this as well. Romans 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. How can a sinful man stand in the presence of a holy God? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Or Galatians 3, 11, 
Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. What Paul is bringing out there is you and I, we can't save ourselves by our religious work. It's wonderful to go to church. It's wonderful to give to the church. It's wonderful to do service. It's wonderful to sing in the choir. It's wonderful to, there's many wonderful things. It's, it's good to feed the poor, to visit the prisoners. But we can't do anything to satisfy God's perfect requirement of a holy life. We need a Savior because we are great sinners. We need a perfect, sinless, obedient life. None of us live that. But the man, Jesus Christ, did live that that is the christmas story that is the gospel message and i love even the language used by habakkuk and quoted by the author of hebrews and paul it's not merely the first step of faith it's a life of faith a vital continuing on on the path of faith as a way of life and then finally the way we see the author wrap up here is there are two paths two choices Two eternal destinies. There's a fork in the road. One road leads to death. The other road leads to life. There is preservation and there is destruction. There is glory and there is doom. There's the promise of heaven and the perdition of hell. First, the road to hell, which is destruction. Verse 38 at the end, he says, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. Dear friend, cowardice is not a small sin. It is a significant if one shrinks back, if one has some semblance of understanding of the straightforward message of salvation, but retreats away from it, that neglects, to neglects so great a salvation to drift away from the truth that we understand in Scripture is not a small thing. That's why back in verse 31, the last verse of that blistering warning against falling away, in verses 26 through 31, do you remember what he said, verse 31? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of living God. Now, he's not saying that to every person. What he's saying is, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a righteous, angry God if you are still in your sin, if your sins have not been forgiven, if you're not trusting in Christ alone by faith alone. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of living God. But if you are in Christ, if your sins are forgiven, if you are washed clean by the blood of Christ, if his sinless, perfect life of obedience has been credited to your account by virtue of faith and trust. It is a beautiful, glorious, encouraging, reassuring thing to rest in the hands of the living God. And by the way, the author here is confident that true faith will emerge victorious. He has warm hope for the congregation to respond rightly. God has complete confidence in you and me by virtue, meaning God, meaning the author, and where we go from here, by virtue of our confidence in him because he is the one that holds on to our hands so that even when we trip, we don't stumble and we're not hurled headlong. And this is the road to heaven, to preservation. Again, verse 
39, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Beloved, when you find faith, true faith, you will find persistence. And God says, stand firm to the end. And that leads us, so as I mentioned, next week we'll have a special Christmas message. I'll be gone on the first. Uh, Tim Palin will bring a message. And then January 8th, we'll launch into Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, the picture gallery of illustration upon illustration upon illustration of men and women from old, of testimony after testimony after testimony. It breaks open with Moses, who did not, who's a living example of the exhortation we just read, who did not regard the treasures and the pleasures of Egypt as something to hold on to, but rather was looking towards a better city, looking towards the city of Zion, looking towards the city where the ransomed will shine brightly and brilliantly forever and ever in the fullness and the foreverness of the salvation that is brought by the babe that was born to a virgin and laid in a manger. That is the Christmas story. That is, excuse me, the gospel message. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you again. We thank you so much, Lord. We praise you for your holiness. We praise you for your righteousness. We praise you for your omnipotence, all the attributes that make you creator God, eternal God. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, that even in your holiness and even in your righteous anger and wrath against sin, you provided a way of escape. You came to earth, born as a baby. We thank you for your sinless, perfect life of obedience, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your voluntary death at the cross, for your supernatural victory over the grave when you rose from the grave. Thank you for reigning in heaven right now as king of our hearts and interceding for us. And Lord, all the fullness of the Christmas story and the gospel message is brought to bear here just for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.